0: Okay, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter thirty two and verse four, please. Says here He is the rock. Hallelujah. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth. And without iniquity, just and right is he. Praise the Lord. This is a wonderful uh, last words, wonderful last words of Moses before, shortly before he uh, passed on to the Lord. And he is celebrating that God is the rock. And he justifies this metaphor. Of course, the Lord is not a literal piece of stone or piece of mountain, but it's a metaphor that reflects his character. And and Moses justifies the metaphor in this same verse God's work is perfect, God's ways are just and fair. He doesn't lie. He doesn't operate out of biases and prejudices. God is faithful to what he says and who he is. You can count on him. He does not do wrong. He is righteous and honest. Do you see it all there? His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he, that's why he's a rock. That's why he's the rock. That's what we mean when we call him the rock. We have uh, come to understand that people can and will let you down. But God won't. Because he's the rock. Life will give you trials, but the trials are short compared to the eternal God in his eternal home? Because he's the rock. Where do people get their moral authority? Because this verse has a a lot to do with God's moral authority. His ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. I bring this up because... Moses was calling the Lord the rock for a reason. And he was pointing out those qualities of the rock for a reason. So we would base our lives on him. The rock is a base. The rock is a foundation. So where do people get their moral authority? In other words, what is their basis? for their statements about right and wrong, for their statements about what we should and shouldn't do, what we should and shouldn't tolerate. God is the rock. A rock rock doesn't float. Without the rock, without God, we would be free-floating. When it comes to our judgments about right and wrong, what to do, what not to do, what to allow and not to allow. We would just do what we feel, do what we think. Maybe we would be diligent about it. Some people are very diligent about making these kinds of decisions. They study, they read, they think deeply and hard about it. Other people are much more carefree, maybe even lazy about it. Well, the person who studies and is diligent about these kinds of decisions is going to have to form his or her opinion. Well, actually, the lazy person and the irresponsible person and the, the more carefree person, he's going to formulate his opinions too. Studying diligently or being a bit carefree, it doesn't, do, neither one is... Uh, the license to form an opinion or not form an opinion. People form opinions. The diligent form opinions. The lazy form opinions. The well-read form opinions. And the ignorant form opinions. Those who are misled form opinions. And those who are being very thoughtful form opinions. Lots of study or a small amount of study. We run the risk of free-floating our decisions if we don't have God for our rock, our solid rock. One person calls a particular behavior sinful, another person calls it good. What one person calls good, another person calls evil. Well, how do we keep this straight? Do we even have a hope to keep it straight? We do if we have the rock. We've all been told, all of us Christians who have witnessed for the Lord, have been told by someone, well, that's good for you, but not me. They say, well, that's your opinion. Well, is that right? Is that right that we have an opinion and the unbeliever has an opinion and we all stand on equal ground with our opinions? Is that, is that the way it is? Is that all? Is that all we're doing is standing upon an opinion like anybody else? Is there nothing that makes the Christians' claims different than the claims of the unbeliever or the Hindu or the Buddhist or the Muslim, the Jew, the atheist, the agnostic. Name your religion. Name your beliefs. You know, the, the uh, Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal. And that's that's biblically grounded. And we're glad for that. Does the fact that all men are created equal mean that all of us who hold our opinions must be treated as though our opinions are all equal? Are all opinions created equal? All men are created equal, and women are created equal? Are all opinions created equal? Brothers and sisters, we as Christians, we could become rather troubled about particular sins that are becoming more and more tolerated or perhaps even be, being called more and more something that's okay or even righteous, right. We could talk about the sexual sins that are so common today. Or we could talk about abortion. We could, you know, fixate on that one sin of abortion. Or we could fix on the sin of substance abuse, which is becoming more and more legalized in our country and in our age. We can focus on the sin of lying, fabrications, exaggerations, twisting of the truth, spin and say, everybody does it. And become very tolerant of it. A lot of people, when you're talking about these particular sins, will become very moral in their tone, in their tone of voice, in their body language, they will become uh, very uh, confident and imperious And speak very defensively about their free right to do some things that the Bible says are sin. Do they have a basis for their moral tone and their moral approach? What is the basis? You see, God is called the rock because He's our basis, He's our foundation. He's what we build our lives upon. Do those who don't have God have a basis that is the equal to the rock? Do Christians have more moral authority or are all people, Christians included, floating, floating on their opinions A lot of people nowadays would like to take the one particular issue of alternate sexualities and turn that into a kind of moral red line. If you're on the right side of that, those issues of alternate sexualities, then you have a chance to be a righteous person. But if you're on the wrong side when it comes to your view of these alternate sexualities, there's no way you can be considered a righteous person. It's a line in the sand. If you respect this politicized agenda of alternate sexualities, you're good. If you don't, you're bad. That, of all things, is becoming the litmus test for whether somebody is good or bad. Sometimes young people today who are so steeped in this kind of thinking... You can witness to them and share with them about Christianity and about your church. And one of their first questions is, do you accept people who are uh, same-sex marriage and who are transsexual and who are uh, alternate sexualities and so on? Do you affirm them and accept them as uh, true brothers and sisters? No, we don't, would say. Well, then you are then right off the bat, disqualified. It's the red line. Oh, then you're disqualified. When you meet with that, my brothers and sisters, because one of my objectives today is to help you be witnesses in Christ. I'm trying to help you be witnesses for the Lord. When you meet with that, where where people challenge you with alternate sexualities and gender orientations and so on as a kind of red line you're in or you're out based on your position in regards to those kinds of issues turn it right around into a question for them where do you get your moral authority to draw that red line is it not just pop culture is pop culture really the rock on which you stand, where do you get your moral authority? And just leave it at that. Let them wrestle with that. Brothers and sisters, sin is sin. We don't have to fixate on this sin or that sin. Where does your moral grounding come from? Ask them. What's the basis for making respect for an array of sexual and gender identification practices, the defining measure of a righteous person or a messed up person. We have many businesses nowadays who are bending over backwards to keep up with this. To keep up with this inclusion, diversity agenda. Inclusion agenda. They're working very hard to... Toe the line and do whatever the the, uh, uh, leaders of the agenda are telling them they need to do because they're afraid of getting disqualified. Where do they get their moral grounding? What's the basis? Many in the Bible celebrated God the rock besides Moses. In 1 Samuel 2, 2, Hannah said, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. David said in Psalm 22, 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my rock, in him will I trust. I like that he said, the God of my rock, that is, God is the rock, but he is also the God of my rock. So he's saying I'm rather strong as a personal, as a person, as an individual. I'm rather I'm rather set and established in my positions. Where do I get my personal stability from? The rock. God, my rock. In Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel twenty two thirty two, David says, For who is God besides the Lord, and who is the rock except our God? In Psalm 40, verse 2, David says, He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of, a mir- of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. These people are all expressing their trust in God to guide them in a righteous way, a healthy way, a clean way. They speak of opposition, that they'll experience opposition. Okay, one of the things I'm trying to do this morning is encourage you and and help you with witnessing, but also I'm trying to encourage you to have trust in God to have peace. Do not be worried. Do not be worried that you don't hold the right positions or you are not keeping up. You have God the rock. And he has brought you out of a slippery place, out of a sinking place, a place of sinking, of sinking mud, of sin. And he has set you upon the rock. And establish your goings. He's the rock because he grounds his people in righteousness and truth, in honesty, in fairness. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Can I hear an amen? Matthew 7. 24, Jesus is teaching here, and he says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. Jesus is creating a graphic picture here for us of a house built on a rock. And the rock gives the house stability. It is strong against the storms that threaten it. But Jesus is not really talking about a house. This is an extended metaphor, right? He's talking about a human life. And he's talking about a soul. He's talking about our behavior. More specifically, he's talking about where to get the strength to keep on doing the right thing in the eyes of God. He's telling us to stick with him. Stick with our master. Listen to what he says. Pay attention to his teaching. Pay attention to the way that he teaches us to go and follow him if we want to live righteously and be justified in the end, resisting the waves of popular culture, we all know what people mean when they say, well, that's your opinion. They're standing up for the freedom of choice. People are free to choose. They're free to choose Jesus or not. We're free to hold an opinion about Jesus that is positive or negative or somewhere in between. Believing, respecting, loving, hating, and all the different variations in between, they're all our free choice to decide. Of course we are free. But you see, being free And opting out is really not saying anything. We understand that from the Bible, too. That people are free. Nobody's going to twist your arm. Nobody's going to make you commit to Jesus. Nobody's going to make you believe in Jesus. Nobody's going to make you obey Jesus. You're free. In a sense, it doesn't even say anything, it says something that is so obvious it doesn't need to be said. The New Testament is the new will, as I mentioned to you during communion this morning, that goes into effect with the death of the testator. The testator, that's the word for the guy who makes a will. Many of you have made a will so that when you die, uh, your family can be supported by your legacy When you make a will, you're called the testator. The testator of the New Testament is Jesus. But we might wonder, do we have the real will? Has the testament been taken care of? Is our document authentic? And I'd like to talk to you about that this morning. Uh, God the rock. So I have some slides to help us do that. When you own a will, when you make a will, you put it in a safe place. When you die, lawyers will make sure that your generations know your will by first ensuring that they have the proper document. For instance, when it comes to God and God's will, There was a first covenant and then there was a new covenant. God changed his will, just like you can change your will before you die. God changed his will and testament. Now we have a new testament. It's the same idea that underlies it. If you serve me, I'll take care of you. But we don't kill lambs. Bullocks, pigeons. We don't make burnt offerings on altars anymore. We don't elevate the importance of a particular building on the face of the earth. We don't fight with our armies over the boundaries of a national state. God has now moved, changed his will. We have a New Testament So I'd like to talk to you about that this morning. On what basis is good defined? On what basis do people stand when they begin to define what is good? Well, I suppose we might say they stand on an elephant. This is a common uh, thought that uh, uh, people say when we don't really know on what basis things stand. It, it's based on uh, Hindu religion and some of the images there, but uh, often it's a way to uh, depict where the earth came from. Where did the earth came from in, in the Hindu religion? They express that it, he rests, the earth rests on the back of elephants, But this morning, I don't want to talk so much about the origin of the earth and on what the universe rests, but instead, morality. On what does morality rest? On what basis can people say, oh, you don't respect alternate sexualities? You don't uh, respect alternate sexual orientations? You don't respect people's uh, legal right to uh, be this or be that, cross-dress and everything else. On what basis do they say that? And on what basis do we say that? You see, people may do this very foolishly and, and lightheartedly and carefree. They may be very lazy about it and just say it. That's, that's the position that's right: respect, diversity and inclusion and so on. But some people are very, actually very diligent about creating a basis for this judgment, and they can argue quite a long time, and with quite a lot of words, in defense of these positions. There's the elephant. What's their elephant? The community. Respect for the community. Elevating community to a very high place in, their, in the structure of their basis. But then we can take it a little further. Well, on what do you base your decisions for the community? What's under the elephant's feet, in other words? Well, we all know it's a turtle. That's also based on the Hindu religion, but... If we use this as a metaphor for moral argument, on what does the community rest? The majority. On what does the majority rest? Well, they're concerned about prosperity for the community, in the longevity of the world, the race. All living life all life forms. Longevity. On what do you base that? Why? Why is that so good? Why is the prosperity and the longevity of the community so important? Love. Under that is love. Where do we go from there? Oh my. This pile of turtles and this elephant holding up the earth, it's getting pretty heavy. What's underneath it? What's underneath the pile of turtles? In this view, where the morality is based on the community, and the community is based on the majority, and the majority is based on the prosperity, and the prosperity... Is based on love. Now what? Is love the bottom? I'll tell you. Love is not easy. Love doesn't finish the picture. Love can't be the bottom. I'll tell you why. We don't know what love looks like if we don't have the rock. For instance, should love be lenient? Or should love be disciplined? Hmm. Some people think it's love to be more disciplined because that will create greater prosperity and longevity for the community. Other people believe love should be lenient to take care of the happiness of the community right now. And the majority will decide. And does the majority even know what they're doing? Love is not easy. Should it be disciplined or lenient? And if we say more disciplined, how do you know? Ah, what's your basis? Again, we go one step lower and go searching. What's your basis? What's your rock? What's your foundation? What's your moral grounding for saying love should be strict? Love should be disciplined or love should be lenient, free, giving, and generous? What's your moral grounding for that? Is love a legal duty? You know, communism says love is your legal duty. You better love the state or we'll put you in prison. Another ideology says love should be your free right. We should just wait for everybody to do what comes from their heart. Well, that that sounds wonderful until you wait for a while. And things don't look so good. Making it legal can push things along but it, could take, it out, could take love out of the heart and make it legal? It's, is it love anymore? Communism is a failed ideology. We should, the world should never go back in that direction again. But, if we just wait for people to act from their hearts, how long will we wait? We might wait a long time. Is that so good? And... Where do we get our moral authority to say that love must be a legal duty, a kind of Sharia law? We should have a theocracy. Sharia law. Where where do we get our moral authority? Or should it be a free right? That's quite a stack. But what's at the bottom of the stack? What's at the bottom of this pile of turtles, this heavy pile of turtles, and the elephant, and the world? What's at the bottom? Personal taste. Cannibals think cannibalism is good for their community. They don't want to give it up. but even the most free-thinking, liberal, political liberal, anthropologist who goes and studies cannibal tribes and cannibal culture says, that's wrong. They've got to stop that. Now that, that's wrong. Gender confusion, that's right. Alternate sexualities, that's right. Legalize substance abuse, that's right. But cannibalism, that's wrong. But on what basis? What? How do they know that? Well, just human, common perception of decency tells you that. Well, not to the tribe that practices it. They think you are bizarre and dangerous to stop their practices. What's at the bottom? Opinion. Is that it? I don't like that picture. I don't like a big, heavy stack of turtles underneath an elephant, underneath the world, to be floating. Some philosophers call the bottom turtle the levitating super turtle. Is that it? Is that what we've got? A levitating super turtle? I've actually had some of my students give me little models of these turtle stacks. Let's try it again. Oh, the picture's a little different. The bottom turtle's not floating. Got a big, solid rock underneath it. All right, let's not call it morality. Ah, I don't even, I don't like to use the term when I'm talking about my faith, when I'm talking about the Bible, when I'm talking about my decisions. I'm not playing the game that the world is playing. I'm not in the same arena that they're in. I'm not concerned about morality. I'm concerned about righteousness. Righteousness being right with God right in the eyes of God. What is righteousness? What's underneath it? On what basis do we have righteousness? Well, we have love. So far, it looks kind of similar to the other uh, picture, except maybe sort of uh, scrunched and sort of condensed. In the other picture, we had a bunch of things in between morality and love, like the community. Here we go, right from righteousness to love. Anybody who follows love follows the whole law of God. Amen? Isn't that what the New Testament tells us? But on love is tricky again. Once again, love is tricky for Christians as it is for non-Christians. Should it be disciplined? Should it be lenient? Should it be legalized? Should it be free will? How do you know about love? Well, here, God. God never intended for us to separate or cut the command to love our neighbors away from him. We are intended to keep our love for our neighbors connected with our love for God. The first commandment is to love God with all your heart. The second commandment is like it. It should never be separated from it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Amen. How do we know how to love people? we know because of God. We have God for our rock. God telling us how. Well, but how do we know about God? On what basis can we talk about God, know God, see God, learn about God? On what basis? Ah! On the basis of the church. Say, watch out, mister, watch out. Don't elevate the importance of the church so high. I'm not... Elevating the importance of the church so high, I'm saying the church is undergirding this world's perception of God. This world's understanding of God. That's the call of the church. The church is called to reveal God to the world. That's our call. Spread the news. Spread the information. Encourage people to find God. Teach people what God is like and what God expects. It's the job of the church. But let's ask the very good question. On what basis does the church do its job? On what basis? The church has a basis. The Bible. The Bibles are rock. Like I said... The Bible is the Old Testament and the New Testament. If the Old Testament was sufficient in and of itself, a New Testament never would have come into being. The New Testament is the new will. God's new will and testament that tells us of a new covenant. He said in the Old Testament that he was going to make a new covenant. And the New Testament is the new covenant. And so I want to talk in particular about the New Testament, the New Covenant. Like I said, when when the testator dies, the first thing the lawyers do is go looking for the right document. Do we have the right document? And they look at the will and they say, oh, here's the date on the will. Yes, this was made and this, and it certainly was made by the testator and it's notarized here, said the testator really did say all these things in my presence and it's signed, ah, very good. We've got a real will here. But then somebody else comes from another safe or another security deposit box and they go, I have one too. And mine's different than yours. Oh, wait a minute. The lawyers say, let me see that. I want to see that. Oh, yeah. It's notarized. It says all the things that he wanted to say. Let me see here. Oh, this one came after this one. This one replaces this one. The New Testament replaces the Old Testament. Not replaces it, but takes it further and shows us the way. So, my question this morning is should we trust the New Testament? Well, it tells of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on a particular Sunday morning about 2,000 years ago. Never before, nothing was ever done like it before or since. Unprecedented before, unprecedented after. This is no resuscitation like Tommy Leader was resuscitated in the emergency room of Krauss' uh, emergency department. This was a resurrection. Tom, you're going to die. It's one of these days. Jesus was never going to die. Say, don't say that to Brother Tom. Okay, I'll say it to myself. Brother Brian, you're going to die. It's appointed unto man once to die. And then the judgment. Jesus died and he was raised from the dead never to die again. Immortal. Incorruptible. Should we trust this New Testament? It seems to be said by the rock. It seems to have a person at the founding of it that is the rock. He's different than any human being that ever lived. Should we trust that the resurrection really took place? Should we trust it? We have a Bible on our laps called the New Testament. It tells of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Should we trust it? On what basis? Well, on the basis of eight different authors, perhaps nine different authors, You know, it's actually uh, very good that the New Testament came about by many different authors who did their work separately from each other. The New Testament was not originally one book. It was originally many books written independently from each other, but all claiming the same thing, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very good for us that that's the way it is. I say perhaps nine authors. It depends what you do with the book of Hebrews. In our church, we typically think of the book of Hebrews as being written by the Apostle Paul, and I, I think that's true. But some people don't accept that. It's nothing to argue over. Okay, we have nine authors that claim within a lifetime from the resurrection that Jesus was resurrected. Of those... Eight authors, six of them refer specifically and clearly to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, independently from each other. Not six books, many books. Some of them wrote more than one book. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. John wrote many books. Paul wrote many books. Six out of the eight, or if you want to say considering the book of Hebrews, seven out of nine refer specifically to the resurrection, independently from each other. Two of them imply the resurrection by saying clearly that Jesus Christ is coming again. When you say He's coming again, physically coming again, you are implying that He was physically risen from the grave. We have really old copies of these books. You know, the lawyers go and they dig up the will and they compare the ages of the will and compare the notarization of the will and they get, da- they get down to the last expression of the testator's will. We have very old copies of the New Testament. We have 12 plus, we have probably 20 church fathers who quoted word for word verses from the New Testament in the 2nd century and 3rd century. We have very old uh, evidence that the New Testament existed. These guys, these church fathers, are acting like notaries for the New Testament. Of these church fathers, there are literally thousands Of quotations from the New Testament from a very early time. This is a chain, a solid chain. Like the lawyer looks for a solid chain of custody from the piece of paper in front of him expressing the testator's will back to the testator himself. We have a solid chain from the Bible from the new testament that is on your lap this morning a chain of custody back to jesus the resurrected son of god hallelujah on what basis then on what basis do we say, oh no? Don't tell me red line is sexual orientation or red line moral red line. If you're on the right side of this line, you're good. If you're on the wrong side of this line, you're bad. Sexual orientation—that's the red line. Gender uh, inclusion—that's the red line. You know, gender uh, confusion—that's the red line. Abortion—that's the red line. You've got to—you've got to approve of abortion to be on the right side. On what basis? I'm telling you, your basis is floating opinion. Your super turtle is levitating. Unless you have the rock under your feet. Unless your life is built on the rock. God is the rock. How do we know about God? The church teaches us about God. How does the church know about God? The church has the Bible, the New Testament. It's a chain. Here is a list of some of the oldest manuscripts we have. Time is fleeing us, so I have to move on from them. But here's a a list of some... Look how old they are. Before 66. Verses from the Gospel of Matthew. 15,000 quotes by the end of the second century, by... The church fathers. Here are the actual numbers. Their names of the church fathers and their, and their numbers. I can always uh, email me. I'll send you this slideshow. Jesus said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Are we sure that we have the sayings of Jesus? We are sure. Beyond a reasonable doubt. Beyond a reasonable doubt. What's the covenant? You serve me, and I'll take care of you. My brothers and my sisters, I came here this morning to tell you, you serve Jesus, and He will take care of you. As a teenager... I decided to serve Jesus. And I want to tell you, now that I'm in my mid-60s, I can testify that Jesus Christ has taken care of me. You serve Him, and He will take care of you. That's His promise. That's His covenant. It is notarized by His blood and by His death. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ loves you. You have every reason to believe in Him. You have every reason to believe in the resurrection. There is no reason to doubt it. To doubt it is to do nothing other than be stubborn. Not a good quality. Oh Lord, in the name of Jesus, help us to serve you. Help us to give you glory and honor. Help us to have faith in you in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you.